This is Clearmountain's Domain. My name's Bob Clearmountain. My name's on a whole bunch of records over the years. I've been mixing and producing records for a really long time. Got a bunch of stories. I think they're kind of boring, but other people seem to like them and want me to talk about them. In fact, I have with me a friend of mine named Cody Klo from Apogee Electronics. Hello, podcast world. My name's Cody, as he said. I work for Apogee Electronics. And uh, if you don't know the tie-in between Apogee and Bob, you'll find out in future episodes. Basically, he's married to our CEO. There you go. Spoiler alert. It's out. Um, but one of the things that I do for Apogee is I travel and do events and workshops. And for about 10 years now, I've been pestering Bob and asking him all kinds of questions and listening to his stories. And I oftentimes repeat these stories and, you know, tips and advice that he shared in demos and people seem to love it. So, you know, Bob and I were talking, we figured, hey, why not start a podcast and share some of these stories for the world to hear? So, Bob, you've mixed... 7,500 albums, something like that, I think I saw online. It's something <laughs> insane. <laughs> You've had so many albums that were really huge hits. What was it like when you first started out recording? Well, it was much different than it is now, obviously. I mean, we were recording on tape. When I started, two-inch tape was a new thing. We had 16 tracks on one big piece of two-inch tape. Yes, yeah, studios were, they had a lot, lot less channels. I mean, the the studio that I started in had um, a 20-channel board, and the other one was a 18-channel board, which is like tiny by today's standards. Not not only that, but back then, a recording studio was a was a pretty big deal. It's the only way you could really make a record at the time, like a professional recording. Nowadays, you can do it on your laptop or your on your phone even. So, to me, the first time I went into a studio, it was a, it was a big deal. I mean, I had dreamt about what recording studios was like. I was a musician. I was a bass player. And um, how I started was uh, the the band I was in was doing a demo at a studio in New York called Media Sound. This is in 1972. The band split up for various reasons that bands always split up. And I thought, well, my career shouldn't depend on other musicians. <laughs> I mean, I don't mean to put down musicians, but... It's really hard to keep a, like five guys, five yeah. or six guys together in a band. And it's, that's probably no different now than it was then. And so I, I thought I could live in this recording studio. I loved it. Even though it wasn't the best studio in the world, I didn't know. It was the only one I'd ever been in. And so I asked them for a job. I went to the, the owners of the place. I made friends with the engineer that was recording us. And he introduced me. And I said, you know, I, I think I could be good at this someday because I'm the the kid in the band always recording the rehearsals on my little stereo reel-to-reel and the gigs and everything like that. And so I had some idea of what recording was about. Going back like several times, the the owners and the managers said, uh, all right, kids, stop bothering us. Come back in September and and uh, we might have a job because there's probably some summer people will be leaving then going back to school, Some the interns. And uh, okay, so I came back and they said, well, we'll hire you as a runner, as a delivery boy. I said, yeah, that's no fine. Way. I'll work it for a couple of years as a delivery boy in New York. That'd be fun. So I was ready to, to be a runner for two, three years. It's fine. I go on and they sent, I reported to the shipping department. They sent me out on a delivery. I came back and the receptionist goes, hey, are you that Clear Mountain kid? Go, yeah, that's me. Oh man, they're looking for you upstairs. It, um, They've been looking all over for you. Where, where have you been? 
but geez, well, I was out in a delivery. I don't know. It's great. I'm in trouble already. I've been here an hour. Right. <laughs> so I go upstairs and uh, and they say, where have you been? You know, we don't need any delivery boys. We need an assistant engineer. Okay. Well, get down to Studio A because you're, you're on a session down there with, with Joe, the engineer. And I go, okay. I walk in and it's a Duke Ellington session. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> my first day on the job. And you'd never, an hour. never done any of it. No. Oh, my gosh. No, That's crazy. I, you know, other than my little home recording thing that I had in my parents' basement. <laughs> That's wild. Were you terrified? Yeah, I was pretty scared. Yeah. The funny thing was that, for me, I'd never met anyone famous in my life. I was 19 years old from Connecticut. I was so naive. And uh, I walk in there, and there's Duke Ellington. And he's swearing at the trumpet players who had shown up drunk at you know 11 o'clock in the morning i didn't know famous people swore right that's, right that's what shocked me right that's how naive i was anyway and so i was like the second assistant i wasn't i didn't actually have to do anything cuz i didn't know anything at the time so i i had to follow the other assistant round and he was showing me how to set mics up and headphones and things like that that's crazy so your career started with an hour of delivery yeah and then right into uh yeah, right. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, then after after a few months, I was an assistant on a session with a band called Cool and the Gang. And the engineer, it was the same, actually, engineer that was doing the Duke Ellington session. And he was, his main thing was either big jazz records like that or or jingles or movie scores. And, and even the jazz records, I don't think he was that into. He was more into the jingles, you know, get them in, get them out, put a bunch of reverb on it and impress them and... Get him out the door, you know? Wow. And uh, he was very good at that. But he didn't like working at night, because this was a night session. And uh, I just didn't think he really liked working on records. And I think that it, people were too slow for him. So he said, look, well, you just do the session. And I was like, no what? Way. And I had never sat down in front of the board before. I only watched other people do it. I was like, really? You sure? Goes, yeah, yeah, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. You know? Okay. <laughs> so he's, I sat down, and he's sitting there reading the paper. And so it's Ron Bell from Cool and the Gang, who's one of the nicest guys. You know, instead of this guy who's paying the card rate, I'm yeah. sure, saying, Wait, what's, who's, why are you giving me this kid? He said, yeah, yeah, we can do this. He said, okay, the first thing we got to do, we got to record some synthesizers. Luckily, synthesizers are very easy to record. So, <laughs> all right, fine. I plugged him in, did that. Because all right, it was 16 track, so we were running out of track. So we, look, let's bounce. He recorded like four or five synthesizers. Let's do a mix and bounce them down to another track. Okay, how do you do that? And I'm looking at the at the engineer. Go. He goes, you figure it out. So I'm going, okay. Let me think. If I push this button and I assign them all to the same bus, and then that's going back to tape, whatever. And I figured it out. And I did it, and and they said, okay, let's let's mix that song now. Okay, now I'm actually doing a mix for a what? record. <laughs> yeah, it's after like two months. <laughs> That's unbelievable. Yeah, and I did the thing, and they were happy. I think I mixed two songs that night, and then they came back six months later to to start a to start a new, the next album, and the engineer in that session, I was the assistant again. The engineer was Tony Bon Jovi, and. Yes, it's John Bon Jovi's cousin, actually. Wow. And um, I never heard of John Bon Jovi back then in 1973. 
So I set the session up. It's a full rhythm section, the whole band. And uh, there's Where's Tony? Hasn't shown up. And so the band's out there rehearsing the song and running it down something. And, well, somebody's got to do this. So I just sat down and started. It's the first time I'd ever done a full rhythm section recording. And um, Ron comes in, listens. We do a take, listens back. He goes, yeah, man, that sounds. He soloed everything. He goes, that sounds fine. That's incredible. Yeah, and then we recorded uh, two hits. Actually, it was uh, Funky Stuff, which got to like 45 or something, and Hollywood Swingin', which ended up at nine, number six. Wow. I was really lucky. It's like the stars aligned. Now, the first time that you touched the console was Cool in the Gang, right? Yeah, Cool in the Gang, yeah. When was the last time you listened to that album and that mix? I, I don't even know what album that was, the first one. We should see honest. if we can look it find it and maybe play a little clip at the end so people can hear your first mix. It was the one before the one with, with Funky Stuff and Hollywood Swingin' and Jungle Boogie. Question for you about something that you told me before. What was your attire like? Oh, we all wore lab coats and ties, of course. You know, pocket protectors. No, pretty much like I dress now. But everyone else wore lab coats at the time, right? Well, not in, this, not in our studio. Yeah. Not in the, in, the, in the independent studios. But um, I know in those days... In the independent studios, the if you were doing a, a record for CBS or RCA, one of the big labels, they would send one of their engineers over to make sure everything was right. okay because they had to pay those guys. Right. You know, the union said that they had to be paid for a session. And so they come over and sit and, and read the paper and, and watch us work. Wow. I'm sure they were getting paid more than I oh, was. Oh, yeah, I'm sure, right? You know, because I was getting like maybe $120 a week or something. And how was that pay for that time? Well, when I started, it was I was getting $70 a week. I'd have begged them for $90 a week. Really? Know? Yeah. Wow. It was tough because my, my first apartment, I was sharing with somebody down the East Village, which wasn't anywhere near as nice as it is now. It was, it was pretty kind of scary, really. I couldn't afford a phone. I mean, I had no telephone. I had a black and white TV set. And that was it. Like, if I had to make a phone call, I had to go to the corner and use the payphone. So you were at that studio for how long? And then what was the next studio you went to? Uh, for five years. And then 77, Tony Bon Jovi, once again, came to me. And he liked me because I assisted for him for a bunch of sessions. And I learned a lot from Tony, actually. He, was, he had worked at Motown before that. And I used to just watch him mix. And he... he he was pretty brilliant, but he liked me, and so he he said, "Look, I'm building a studio called Power Station." I mean, we didn't know what it was called at the time. He said, "I'm building my own studio." He had had big disco hits with Gloria Gaynor, "Never Can Say Goodbye," um, disco Star Wars. <laughs> you know? Wow, you know, and he, and uh, he said, "Yeah, I got some money, so I'm going to build my own studio," and so I actually helped search for the building with him. It was originally just the two of us. And then he said, yeah, we need, we need a, uh, another partner, like a business guy. And so he, he took one of the managers at, of media, a guy named Bob Walters, and he became the, Tony's partner. And we looked at like five or six different buildings. We finally found the building that was Power Station. I remember going into that building the first time, and it, it had been a TV studio before that. They shot a, a show called Let's Make a Deal in there. And it was just a huge soundstage. And I remember they had a stairway that was basically a fire exit. And so they didn't use it for anything. And I walked in to the third floor and clapped my hands. And it just, and it just went, 
this like amazing sound. And I said, That's, this is the building. Yeah, wow. this, let's take this. I said to Tony, he's like, we turn this into an echo chamber? He said, yeah, sure, of course. And it was great. It was a big, clean slate. We were able to just design anything we wanted, like the ideal shaped studio. And it was, it was pretty much fun to, be, to do that. That's so cool. Yeah. Well, it sounds like Tony for sure, but who else were some of the major influences or maybe mentors you had, you know, as you were kind of going through yeah. this? Well, uh, there were a couple guys at, at uh, Media, all staff engineers. Uh, there was a guy named Jeffrey Lesser, who was a, just incredible, just a really funny guy and, and just a really nice person. He kind of took me under his wing for a bit. And uh, he was great because he'd always, anytime there was a new piece of gear, he said, let's pull that out and see what it does. And you know, let's play with it and see, see what kind of sounds we can get out of it. And so he was very experimental, where the older guys, not so much. They were into just... Do what they do. And yeah, whatever the simplest way. They didn't want to get too complicated, you know what I mean? I feel like you use new stuff all the time, even though you have your stuff that is your go-to. Yeah. I, I So many times I've seen you hooking up, you know, new gear that someone sent or you heard about and went and picked up. And so... I'll try anything. Yeah, yeah. sure. So he, he was great. And then there was a guy named Michael DeLug, who was actually the guy that was recording up our band was doing the demos for our band oh, wow. and he was really nice and he taught me a lot of stuff and it was mostly just watching these guys it was like being a, like an apprentice really yeah. more than anything only you you had a few different people and they, they all had different styles of working which is great and most of the time they just let you let me set up any way that i felt and p i'd pick the mics no and we do orchestras. Wow. We, I mean, we do like a rhythm section and an orchestra, like strings and horns. You know, I would try. I would get to try different mics and listen to them. And on this one jingle guy, it's kind of like he wouldn't even walk into the studio. And Tony usually wouldn't walk into the studio. Mm -hmm. And I just so every session I would try different mics and see what they sounded like. And I'm standing behind the, you know, I'm not sitting at the board, right? You know, but I'm getting to learn how to how to engineer actually by not even touching anything that's so cool yeah it was great i mean they were it was nice that they let us do that and then on the weekends we the studio was wasn't busy and so me and some of the other assistants and engineers would would come up we had a little band that we called the bats but it was more of a studio workshop where we'd record ourselves we wrote some of the worst songs you've ever heard and we would just try anything we would experiment it was such a great environment wow because we could we could make mistakes and it didn't matter and we could just try all kind of try every microphone and every instrument yeah mm -hmm. i love that well it sounds like you had a uh, a pretty i don't know magical experience as everything was kind of taking off for you everything seemed to like line up in the craziest way so to make the rest of us have some glimmer of hope <laughs> what was the biggest mistake or the biggest like oh shoot moment you had as you were starting out and kind of you know watching some of these other guys or did you just do everything perfect <laughs> <laughs> far from perfect back then the, the the thing was you're recording on on a piece of tape oh yeah. right? it's not like like logic or pro tools where no undo there's no undo you know what i mean like you have to when you punch into a track you got your timing has to be really precise to get it in between phrases and stuff like that if you're doing vocals not only that but you have this thing next to you with 
16 or 24 buttons, depending on what year it was, and make sure you hit the right one that you don't put, you know, you put the empty track in a record and not the one with the lead oh, vocal. Man. Yeah, you and know they I mean? have the most magic take ever and you don't get it, right? Right. I mean, there were times, I remember there was one time I was recording something and I can't remember what we were recording, maybe a tambourine or something. And I put a track in record, you know, we're recording the thing, I'm listening and all of a sudden, what happened to the sax? Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, stop the thing. Hang one sec. Okay, can oh, we do yeah. another take? And I go to another track. Oh, f- oh man, I just recorded the, the whole intro of the sax. Oh, right? and, man. And so that, that's when I'd start to get inventive and figure out, okay, how can I fix this? And I'd, I'd find little bits of right. w- where he played the same thing later on in the song. You know, maybe the re-intro where he played the same thing. And I'd fly, and you, it wasn't like Pro Tools where you just Click chop drag, it up yeah. and drag it. And no, you'd have to fly it onto a piece of quarter inch tape and then line it up with the tape machine and then start the machine in just in t- exactly in time so that there's enough time for the quarter inch machine to get up to speed. So you had to, you know, have like a beat ahead of time. Mm-hmm. And then it had to be in time and then hit record. And lay it in really That's quickly. So crazy. And then punch out just before the part that right that you didn't erase come, starts. Wow, <laughs> right? that's that's insane. I remember something you said actually. It kind of reminds me of this. A couple of years ago, you said something about some of the different mistakes that have happened, you know, throughout the years, ended up being some of the coolest ideas. Yeah, well, yeah. What's the most? Or I don't know. One of your favorite mistakes that ended up being something really cool. Oh man. Well. That's a tough one, like, uh, uh, out of the top of my head. I mean, later on when, when we got into digital, oh, no, I know. There were times when cutting the two-inch multi-track tape, you'd record something, and normally you're in what they call sync mode, so that if you do an overdub, you're actually listening off the record head right. so that anything you record is exactly in sync with what you're listening to. Because mm-hmm. if you're listening to the playback head, now you're recording... The time is off, yeah. A little, yeah, just in a different place on the tape. But then when you do an edit, you got to make sure that you're... Because you're marking the edit point with a little china marker, a white china marker. And uh, you got to make sure you're marking on the right head. Normally what you do is you switch it to playback. Mm-hmm. So now you're on the playback head. But if you forget and you're marking on the playback head but you're listening to the, the sync head, now you have this little gap. And I remember a couple of times where I, I would do that, I'd make that mistake, and on the drums, you'd get this, it, there'd be like a cymbal hit, and then it would chop off right away. So it sounded like the drummer just- Like he choked the cymbal. Like he choked wow. the cymbal, or hit the hi-hat, in a certain, and it actually worked. That's crazy. You know, and sometimes it works, sometimes it wouldn't work, and then right. I have to go and go back and fix the edit. But sometimes it actually would be cool, you know, stuff like that. Okay, another question for yeah. you. Do you ever get starstruck or have you ever been starstruck by any of the people you worked with? I mean, you've worked with some of the, the most legendary, iconic artists of mm-hmm. all time. Yeah. What's that like? Let's see, yeah, I worked with Mick Jagger quite a bit. And no, I remember David Bowie, on a David Bowie session, well, he was friends with Susan Sarandon. And wow. when she came in, I was... Then I was starstruck. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure. <laughs> Not so much for David, but... <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, my gosh. No, I mean, you know, the first time I mixed, worked with Mick, obviously, wow, man, sitting next to Mick Jagger. <laughs> I bet. 
You know, this is this is amazing. But that wears off like really quick because mm-hmm. soon as he says, "Okay, this is what I want to do," and all right, all right, and then you just start working, and then it could be anybody, pretty right. much. You know, because I'm just doing the job, whatever it is, and it's it's not that much different. You know, yeah, I've been pretty lucky working with Bruce is pretty amazing because he was a always a big deal even back in the 70s but of course once again with bruce one time robin williams was friends with bruce and he came in and did that like an hour crazy. of stand-up in the studio no way and so that was pretty impressive wow <laughs> you, know? you uh you and betty sent me to bruce's house a couple years ago he yeah. did some help with computers and stuff and yeah. i remember it was the f- funniest and like most surreal thing where i'd be working on one of his computers and you know every you know 30 minutes or so he would just kind of pop in and hey cody you want a sandwich? You know, no, I'm okay, thanks. Yeah. And then right. after he asked me a few times, I started to feel bad. Like, I better I better say yes at some point. Like, <laughs> right. I just start to feel like I keep saying no. And he comes in, he's like, hey, Cody, yeah. you, you want the best cup of coffee you ever had in your life? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, sure. You know, like, how do I say no to that? And it truly was the most incredible coffee. I know. These guys, they're so nice. I mean, him, Jagger's just the same way. I remember having a meeting with him at his apartment in, in London one time. And uh, the first thing he does is offer me a cup of tea. And it's not like he's got some housekeeper. Yeah, or yeah, that he's he, like, he, he runs off to the kitchen mm-hmm. and brews up a cup of tea and brings it to me. He's like, wow. I love that. <laughs> That's impressive. I love that. Yeah. There are still so many questions I want to ask you. And we're going to save a bunch of them for future episodes. Uh, but as we start to wrap it up, I want to ask you about the first of many, a Bob Clear Mountain rumor. When you go online I love, and I love yeah, these. type in your name, I mean, the things that you come across are just priceless. And so I want to, in this episode, uh, ask you about probably the most infamous rumor that I've seen so far about you online, and that is NS10s and the whole paper over the tweeter, that whole <laughs> thing. I mean, the speculation and uh, people getting so detailed with the placement of it and what type it is. And, oh, it's not this. That's, you know, it just level 10. So <laughs> I would love to hear from you. How did that start? What was the right. deal? Did you even do it? You know. Right, first of off, NS10s, it, it wasn't my idea. I mean, there was a, an engineer at Power Station, a guy named Bill Shanneman, you mean to use friend. the NS10s? To use NS10s. Okay. He had worked at, I think he had, he'd come out to LA, I think, if I remember correctly, I'm not sure this is the right story, but he used them at Motown. Motown used to have a studio here, and he used them at Motown Studios. I think he was working with Sheik or somebody like that. And I was trying to find a new pair of speakers, because I... I liked, I didn't like you, never liked using big studio monitors because they were too big and like who has these at home? Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't never made any sense to me. And so I had these old KLH 17s from when I was a kid. They were really old. They were falling apart. They were deteriorating. They were distorted. And they were, I just needed something else to mix on. And Bill said, you know, try these NS10s. They were sitting on the floor of Studio C, I think. He goes, try those. They, they work pretty good, I, you know. They had them at Motown, and I got a pair for here. Okay, so I put them up, and they sounded pretty good. I liked the way they sounded. Um, I did a mix on them. I took the mix home, listened to it, and it, it, it sounded everything sounded right. The bottom end sounded like what I expected. The mid-range sounded right. They were a bit dull. I, my mix was a bit dull, right? So I thought, well, the mix is dull, so it must mean the speakers are bright. 
you know, because I'm not obviously not putting enough top end, and it's keeping me from doing that. And um, I'm, I think I'm a little overly sensitive to to treble mm-hmm. anyway. You me know? too. Yeah. So I said, I asked the the techs at, at Power Station. I said, can you do something to the tweeter? Can you change the crossover in some some way to make them a little? Du-? And they said, no, no, we don't we don't get into speakers. Right. They, they were afraid to mess with speakers. You know what I mean? Not sure why, because they did a lot of other stuff. They modified the consoles and the tape machines and everything else. And so I said, okay, well, what can I do? So that we had these things called Kim wipes in the studio, which are industrial, like paper towels, but they, they're very lint-free, which is great for, for cleaning the heads on tape machines and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So I said, well, what if I just draped this thing over the tweeter? Maybe that would cut down on the top end. And I did that, and that worked. I took a mix home, and it was exactly right. Hmm. I thought, well, this is cool. And so I just started doing that. I just started. That's hilarious. Yeah. And so, yeah, it is true. Wow. But it wasn't toilet paper. Yeah. And it wasn't paper towels. And, right. And it was this thing called a Kim wipe. And it's funny because a guy had done a a whole study in Mix Magazine. I think he did a whole article about it. And he tested all kinds of different toilet paper. Oh, that's so great. And I mean, he could have called me and asked mm-hmm. me. What, right. And so he said, oh, this is a bunch of nonsense because it doesn't work. And it's, it, it, there's, a phase, there's phase issues. Okay, yeah, probably. Yeah, <laughs> I don't yeah, know. Right. But the mixes come out pretty yeah, good. Yeah, seriously. Know. That's so funny. Well, you heard it here. So that rumor is officially debunked. It was a chem wipe. Yeah, and and then Yamaha fixed the problem. They came out with the studio version, and I don't know what they did. They adjusted something. They hit a chem wipe inside. Yeah, maybe. I guess so. But um, then I started using them without the chem wipe. We were talking about this earlier, and it'd be really fun to uh, end these podcasts with some advice. So... You know, we opened up the uh, phone lines and shockingly, no one called in because this is the first episode. <laughs> so if you could give your younger self starting out advice, if you could travel back in time, what would you tell yourself as you just started out? Do everything exactly the way you plan on doing it. <laughs> well, for myself, I would, I would say skip producing. You kind of, it's indoctrinated into when you're starting out, at least when I was starting out, that look what you want to, you don't want to be an engineer all of your life, you want to become a producer. I'm like, okay, and you know, things moved on and I started producing, co-producing with Tony Bon Jovi and, and Brian Adams and various people. And I finally realized that I hated producing, <laughs> that my favorite part of the session was the end of the day and I'd always be, anybody want a rough mix? I could do a nice rough yeah. mix, you know? That was my favorite part. I finally got a manager once I started actually producing. I needed, had to get a manager because I, I started getting ripped off in the early days. And then the manager I had, he said, why are you even mixing? Cause, or why are you even producing? Because it takes you, you know, months to produce an album and you can, you can mix like three albums, in the, three or four albums in the time it takes you to produce one. Right. So you, you can do a lot better. And I realized that I wasn't that good at producing. You know what I mean? It's like like I produced co-produced with Brian Adams. Basically, I was a I was an engineer. I was the sound guy. Hmm. You know, and once in a while he would take some arrangement advice or you know, I would get some kind of production idea in there through the cracks, but not that much. <laughs> so yeah, I would say just I would have told myself to skip. Just skip. The, over and that. I wouldn't say that to anybody else. Yeah. 
because uh, everybody's different. It's, it really depends on who you are. Sure. And, and I mean, for myself, I wish I had learned to play piano too. Interesting, but you are you're a heck of a bass player. Well, thank you very yeah, much. I mean, yeah. we uh, Bob and I have uh, played together at many yeah, uh, Apogee parties, That's and right. uh, that Battle of the Bands last year that yeah, was. We- really fun and we won yeah we did all right well i think that's gonna wrap it up for this episode and not to worry if you're listening there are so many more questions we also want to hear from you if you have a question for bob uh in future episodes we will be taking those questions so stay tuned and thank you so much for listening until next episode cheers here's a clip from bob's first mix in 1973 this is good times by cool in the game Next time, Bob recounts stories of old. Crazy blizzard, and the truck spins out, tips over, dumps the SSL on the road, and it's just me out in the middle of a blizzard pushing this SSL. Answers your questions. No, just because it's a home studio doesn't mean I, I mix naked. And talks about what really grinds his gears. They put the mic stand away, and they crank it down so that you need a wrench to, to loosen the thing. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Clear Mountains Domain. For more information about this podcast or to submit questions for Bob to answer in future episodes, please visit us online at apogeedigital.com and click on the Clear Mountains Domain podcast banner.